0: Hi everyone, this is Jason Profetto and we are on a Serendipitous Logic podcast. This is episode 14. This is a special episode because I get to have with me a, a very unique and well-known individual, um, Dr. Sean Motley Hi, Jason. And, and and Sean, do you want so do you want to say hi and maybe just briefly introduce yourself, where you're from, what do you do, that sort of thing?
1: Great. Yes. Uh, hello, Jason, and hello to everyone who's listening. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. Thanks for all the work that you do on these podcasts. I know they're very widely listened to. I'm a family doc from uh, Mount Albert, which is just near Newmarket.
0: And uh, it's a little rural village, and I've been doing that for the last couple of years. Awesome. And, And Sean and I actually originally met on Twitter. It's very interesting because a lot of these podcasts that I've been doing are with people that I've actually initially interacted with and cross paths with on, on some sort of social media, mainly mainly Twitter. And so if you want to follow Sean, Sean is at uh, Sean, S-H-A-W-N underscore W-H-A-T-L-E-Y, but he tells me the pronunciation is watt, like the electrical unit, right? <laughs> so um, Sean You have worked, as you were trained as a family doctor, but more recently you've been working, uh, doing emergency work?
1: Yeah, correct. After my residency, actually I did a couple changes in residency, but I ended up uh, finishing off with emergency medicine, and I did that for around 15 years.
0: So, tell me a little bit more about the emerge work you do. Where you are, and how busy uh, it is, that sort of stuff.
1: So, my emerge experience is from South Lake Regional Health Center in Newmarket.
0: Uh, we're seeing there around a hundred thousand visits a year. And acuity-wise, are you seeing a lot of higher acuity things too, or is it a big spread all the way down to the less
1: uh, The most recent admit uh, percentage is around 12.8%. The average in the central inn is just over 11%. If you look at a trauma center like Sunnybrook or St. Mike's, they admit around 18%. Mm-hmm. So certainly we're not a quaternary care center, but uh, we're even slightly above average in acuity from a lot of the other hospitals around. But very typical large volume suburban emergency department,
0: and so you, you you were working in the you have been working in the emerge for about fifteen years, and you've come also to writing, so you you've you've recently uh, wrote you recently wrote a book. It's called No More uh, Lethal Weights, Ten Steps to Transform Canada's Emergency Departments, and written by Sean Watley. Um, tell me a bit about. How you came to write as a doctor, and where you found time, and how you made that balance, yeah. if, if you did do it effectively. Uh, well, well,
1: that's a separate question. and We can get to that question <laughs> if you want. So why writing? Um, I, I, I started writing because I wanted to help people. We were getting so many questions that were the same questions over and over. It seemed like we needed a way to communicate, to scale up our ideas so that more people would understand them. And so I started that with a blog actually first.
0: How long ago did you start that?
1: Uh, The first blog was called StopPatientWaiting.com, and I believe that was in 2012.
0: Oh, no kidding. And what was your response? Uh, what was the initial response that you got? Did you get a lot of people providing feedback and liking it? Or yeah. did you just continue because you enjoyed it? So my mom and my best friends loved it. <laughs> I had a very small audience. <laughs> and, and, and it's, I, it's ironic because the blog I've started, which I've started relatively recently, I, I, most of my followers are, are close friends and docs and a lot of medical students and residents, right? And, and it gives you that fuel to keep going. Did you get that sort of experience as well? I, I
1: think so. Uh, what what I realized very quickly is that I didn't understand what I was saying as clearly as I thought I understood it. Mm-hmm. And so my frustration at other people not understanding what I was saying was actually because probably I was more confusing than I realized. So writing forces you to uh, get clarity in what you're trying to communicate. Uh, and very quickly, I realized I wanted to talk about more than just waiting. So that's when I started my next blog.
0: What was your next blog?
1: Just com.
0: And that one you've been doing for the last few years?
1: Uh, since the fall of 2013. Yeah.
0: My mom, my mom reads my blogs and, and a lot of my posts, and she says that I use too many commas. So I, I'm, I'm always trying to improve. And I was, I was saying to you before that I can be not only um, politically incorrect, but grammatically incorrect too. And I, I don't mind. I'm always open to learning and improving and moving forward, right? So t- tell me a little bit about this book. Tell me, tell me about what really sparked you to, to write it and, and the sort of message that's inside. Because there's a lot of interesting stuff in this book.
1: Yeah. Yeah. What I realized um, is that many of the reasons that people wait in emergency medicine is because of the processes that we build and put in place. So we as providers, presumably out of the goodness of our heart, we all want to do the right thing, but we build in structures that... Cause patient suffering. And so we came up with this approach to emergency medicine uh, that is very different than the standard model. And right at the beginning of the book, I give credit to uh, Marco Duich. He honed a, a lot of these ideas at St. Joe's Hospital in Toronto. And uh, we stole him, recruited him up to Southlake, and built on all of the success that they had had at St. Joe's and took it to another level and tried to put words and uh, flesh on the concepts that maybe we're a little more difficult to articulate and that led to the blog led to writing led to some speaking opportunities and then ultimately to the book
0: okay so let let me give you right away a very real-life scenario and I I, I practice family medicine I do a lot of academic stuff I see patients every single day Um, recently I had an elderly man with with severe abdominal pain and he actually looked quite unwell and my thought I'll, I'll save the details of the actual medical history but my thought in terms of the management plan was I, I, I really think he needed to be seen in an emergency department. The patient himself and the family were extremely reluctant because they did not want to go to the, they did not want to go to the emergency because of the, the, the risk of having to wait so long, one. But also this sort of stigma of ER, of the ER department of what it was going to be like, how they were going to be treated. What, what, what do you say to people like that? I mean, it's it's almost as bad as parking serving as a deterrent to proper health care. It drives me crazy a little bit. I'm, I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. So you have about eight questions in there. <laughs> so you said weight, stigma,
1: uh, parking. Um it's interesting that you use that a case to to bring up the issue, and I think that's what got me um that's what put the fire in my belly initially. Uh, in my community, I've lived there about 15 years now, and more and more people that I cared about would go to the eMERGE and then tell me later, you know what, I waited six hours, eight hours. I went there at 3 o'clock in the afternoon with my kid's broken arm. We didn't get seen until 2 a.m. And so that, those kind of stories, they hurt after a while, especially when they're people that you care about. Or in your case, if you're sending patients in that you care about, uh, those kind of questions are, are more than just academic questions. These are real-life questions for real life people and and so the short answer is we need to change it it doesn't need to be that way we make people wait in waiting rooms because it makes our work environment more tolerable but it doesn't do anything for the stress the fear that people have while they're spending eight hours with severe abdominal pain sometimes in the waiting room
0: and what would be your very first thought, if you needed to correct these or or make major fixes to these emergency departments, how would you approach it? Yeah. So the whole book we can
1: summarize in two sentences. Number one, treat everybody as we treat our most privileged patients. So when you go to your emergency department, especially if you've worked there or if you know some people who are working there, I'm pretty sure you don't wait 10 hours in the waiting room. Uh, even if you don't know someone in that department, you know what to say and you know how to talk to the right people to get yourself the care that you need. Well, if we can figure out a way to provide prompt, high-quality, great customer satisfaction, service to certain people, why can't we do that for everybody? And that's the motivating force behind the ideas in this book. How can we treat everyone with the same approach as we treat our most privileged patients?
0: Do do you agree that a major issue or perhaps a major deterrent to achieving that? Is the fact that a lot of ER nurses and physicians and other staff have become quite apathetic that they they're they're burning out so to speak so great question i would I would uh, separate
1: apathy from burnout um, I don't think anyone went into medicine out of apathy. I think everybody went in with a general desire oh, let's say ninety eight percent of people went in with a true desire to help people. And when you want to make big changes in a department like we did, uh, speaking to that internal motivation is probably one of the most effective ways to get people to buy into new change, especially when they've already got to the point of frustration, burnout, maybe even apathy. You can remind them about why they went in. Why are you here? Remember, you trained because you wanted a challenging environment where you could make a difference in people's lives. And when you speak to that core motivation, people are on board with all sorts of change.
0: I I find that very interesting, and I agree. If you look at our office, for example, I'll, I'll often say to the front staff, especially when we're training somebody, the most important thing that you can actually do for a patient when they walk in is smile, greet them, with a lot of compassionate words, and just actually be quite nice to them. Mm-hmm. And, and not and not in a contrived sense or in a fake sense, but in, in a very genuine sense. If they come in and, and, and you give them that attention, they're just so much more, right off the bat, so much more satisfied. Which means, and this is what I've found in family medicine, and I also believe this in the Emerge too, is that they're going to be a lot more likely to buy into the different office flows i understand that policy i understand that i have to call at this time that makes sense you've engaged me i get it you're nice we we have that sort of collegial uh, respect, that, that, that mutual respect. Do you agree with that? Have you, have you seen similar sorts of things in the emergency?
1: Oh, I think you nailed it, Jason. Um, medicine starts and finishes with the doctor patient relationship. A relationship is about one human trying to help another human. And so if we don't start and finish with humanity, with actually speaking to a person's felt needs, as opposed to offering a technological service or a technical service, Uh, we've missed the boat. So you are bang on. The trouble is, uh, as money runs short and as time runs short and we have to do the best we can in less than ideal circumstances, uh, the humanity often gets overshadowed by wait times and measurements and metrics and reviews and patient complaints. But that's no excuse to not be outstanding at our ability to deliver patient service when patients are at their moment of greatest need. We should be teaching the service industries how to provide great service. We shouldn't be going to Hilton Hotels to teach them, for them to teach us in medicine how to provide service. We should be teaching everybody else how to do it. So you're bang on.
0: So how how does it compare and contrast to a private system, say in the U.S., a private hospital where patients are paying or they have insurance that will pay for their visit, how does the treatment of patients differ or or not in that in that scenario versus a single-payer public health care system like ours? And and my, my specific question is, is in terms of the staff, so the doctors and the nurses, are we much more likely to be nicer More patient with the patients in the former, private or latter, or is there no difference? So, um, this might not be,
1: um, your listeners might not all agree with this, but I believe that you can have nice and not nice people regardless of their payment system or regardless of the structure that you have. Uh, What's most important is that you have aligned incentives. So everybody from the top-down leadership, middle management, frontline staff have to be 100% aligned to towards a goal of serving patients. So in a private system with uh, insurance where you have first-dollar coverage, they could be every bit as nasty, dismissive, rude, Uh, uh, with a lack of compassion, (laughs) I'm stumbling over the word, uh, as you would find in the most um, monopolistic, uh, uncaring, state-run system. So I don't think we can blame the system per se having said that, if you have a system with misaligned incentives, where some people are better off going slow, others are better off going fast, some people are rewarded for being nice, other people actually get less work and more break time for being a bit rude, yeah, you're going to have a difficult time putting patients at the center of that system.
0: That's a very good point too, because it it also speaks to that sort of um, intrinsic motivation to do well within medicine. So is this a job? Is this a calling? And, you know, maybe is a co- some combination of the two. When I am nice to a patient, it, it's it's sincere. It's not because I'm trying to make money more efficiently or getting a higher bonus or incentive in that regard. But what keeps me fresh? What keeps me? What makes me continue to be nice and empathetic? And I'm curious to see if you have an answer or a thought on that or not, because it's something that's studied quite significantly at the medical school and postgraduate level too.
1: So that's a huge question you've asked, actually. And you know that uh, I have... uh, an interest in armchair philosophy as you do as well so you're, you're, you're touching on intrinsic motivation altruism whether there is such a thing as altruism or whether we should be talking about um, self interest sort of uh, Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations uh, The Butcher doesn't be nice to the customer because he loves the customer he's trying to do the best for his customer so that the customer comes back and buys more meat from him tomorrow so there's some truth there but I also believe and and some of my friends who listen to this later will want to argue with me on this point (laughs) because we've already argued about it I do believe that there's an element of intrinsic motivation I do believe altruism is actual is an actual real thing that can motivate people to go above and beyond uh, so it's a very complex question that you've asked. And and certainly if we leave out either end of the spectrum, I think we're missing some value there. I do worry when we teach our students that it's just all about your heart, it's all about altruism, you can't think about anything else. Uh, that's denying a huge chunk of, of humanity, a huge chunk of what it means to be a human. I feel more comfortable talking about aligned interests on a basis of a solid character and propensity professionalism uh, to deliver great outcomes for patients.
0: Dr. Brian Goldman, I think he's called Night Shift MD. He wrote a book called The Secret Language of Doctors. And, and he, he talks a lot about the different not only like the different, uh, he calls it our goal, the, the different short terms, the short forms, the different acronyms that we use to describe disease in patients. But not only that, the, the language, the culture in which doctors and other allies Refer to patients. Right? There's some argument, however, that the opportunity to debrief with a colleague—you see a very difficult patient who has a very malodorous abscess that needs to be drained—and and it's in the anal rectal region—you know the opportunity to debrief with staff and others in in a, in a bit of a joking way—someone argue is healthy. But if you, if you sit in on that conversation as a patient, it can also come off as quite offensive. Where do you think that lies in, in how doctors feel, how nurses feel in the emergency department? Yeah.
1: So another gigantic question that you've just asked, and, and I think it touches on the... the uh, not the dehumanization, but the the depersonalization that we have to go through to get to a point where we can act in an emergency situation or where we can act in a situation where normal people would be so disgusted or overwhelmed that they might pass out or their eyes would go blurry. They wouldn't be able to do what needs to be done. So part of medical training, nursing training, allied health training is to be able to see beyond that initial natural human reaction. Well, to be able to get beyond that opens you into a different level of of, um, of of performance or ability to function that isn't it isn't to be talked about on the street. Uh, so when you are working with a colleague who's gone through a similar training to be able to put aside the foul smell that you brought up or the, the repugnance that most people would feel. Repugnance is probably the right pronunciation. To, that most people would feel towards these situations. Now you're talking with someone who also has got beyond that, and you can talk about other things. I, I find it a little... Um, uncouth or distasteful for our colleagues to take that sort of inner sphere and just throw it out there into the public eye and say oh this is the sort of thing that you might hear in a private conversation when if you and I are talking about something like that in private afterwards or in confidence uh, we're not intending to be disrespectful we still have the best motivations at least i would say 98% of our colleagues would have the the best intentions for our patients at heart and and yet to take some of those kind of conversations and throw them out into the public is just i don't think it helps anyone i was a coroner for 5 years and and the things we see the things we have to deal with you know you uh, burned bodies or people dead for a long time or or people dying in circumstances that i mean to talk even to give you de- I can't give you details in, in on in a live public uh, you know in a live podcast because they they're just not for public consumption but to be able to have the language to talk about those details requires a different kind of mindset it's not to say that you're no longer compassionate it's not that you're no longer uh, concerned about the people that were harmed or the circumstances that led up to it but just to be able to develop that kind of language, to communicate, to get the work done, um, doesn't mean that you're a vile person to to use, to be able to function in that area. Now, I'm not defending or arguing against the book that you refer to. I haven't read the book. Um, I don't know exactly what he said. And there might be things that he has in that book that I would agree with him on and say, that's terrible. We should never talk about people like that. So I don't... I hope you, maybe you set me up to.
0: I'm <laughs> <laughs> a tricky guy. I'm not Jason. that device yeah. there, there, There's there's another very interesting book that a lot of people have read, and and, and Brian Goldman refers to it as well. It, it's called The House of God, right? And um, Samuel Shem, I think, is the yeah. author. And uh, it, it, it's it's just got it's just full of cynical examples of how doctors and nurses and students and interns look at the medical world and the the sort of hidden truth or hidden curriculum but then but a lot of students and residents can can and doctors can really identify with it right and yeah. and, and, and they can see it so it is it is a, a definitely a balance. And I think what the, the, ult, the ultimate trump card is definitely played by patient respect and, yeah. and the, the dignity of, of, of individual patients.
1: Cynicism wouldn't be cynicism if it was your new set of values. It would just be that you've got a mi- mixed up set of values and you would no longer be cynical. That would just be a warped set of values that you're holding. So I think to be a true cynic, you need to actually know what is right and what is good and honorable and the right thing for your patients. And so that you can actually step back and say, "Oh yeah, no, that was kind of off the rails. There's a bit of dark humor. We went a little bit far." If if you're saying that people are actually that way, that they don't know, they no longer can see that that is dark or cynical mm. or wrong, then I agree, that's a problem. Mm. But I don't think that describes most people. At least not in my 20-some years of experience. Most people really do care for patients, they want to do what's right, they want to help them, and they hurt when their patients hurt.
0: Yes. I I think that's well put, and I do agree. Let let me, I want to come back to, I'm going to just turn back to the ER for a a second, because something I've pondered a lot is the analogy of a highway, and is the emergency full of people, people waiting, any dissimilar to a highway packed with cars? Insofar as it doesn't matter how you organize them, how efficient you make the highway, traffic or the flow, there's just a lot of cars. There's a lot of people in that hallway, and it doesn't matter how you arrange them. There's just a lot of people, and they're going to have to go one through the door, one at a time through the door. Is that similar or dissimilar to the emergency? Have you actually thought about that analogy in your own experience? That's a brilliant analogy, and actually a lot of people write
1: academic papers using exactly that analogy. So you're, you're referring to queuing theory. So whenever you have unscheduled demand upon a service, whether it's a highway or a lineup at Tim Hortons or the lineup at an elevator, uh, engineers uh, working in flow science find that The highway works great until it reaches about 80% capacity. At 80% capacity or 83% capacity, all of a sudden, the whole highway stops moving. And you've probably noticed that. You know, at a certain point, everybody's driving 120, one extra car on the road, boom, you're stopped, right? You're crawling along at 20. And that's queuing theory, and you can model this. And and that's why Canadian hospitals don't function well. They think they're going to get their maximum efficiency by having 100% occupancy, whereas queuing theory shows that your maximum efficiency is around an 82 83% occupancy. Just like the highways, there's a point at which you add one extra car, the whole thing stops. So yeah, brilliant. Uh, and uh, if you came up with that on your own, you should be writing about <laughs> queuing theory. <laughs>
0: how does how does that how how do you apply that to the emergency, um, especially in, in, in regards to improving it?
1: Yep. So another great another great question. So in the book, we talk about a poverty mentality versus an abundance mentality. So when times are tough and you're running out of money, you think, well, we need to stretch everything as far as we can. You know, parsimony becomes the the the, the theme of the day. I'm going to do as little as possible for as many people as possible, and that way we'll be able to give a little bit of care to everybody. The trouble with that is it... Leaves your department with no resilience. It's like trying to put, you know, pack the highway with 100% full of cars. Flow stops, you have no way to cope with catastrophe. So, you're better off in the emerge to have an abundance mentality and say, What more can I offer for this patient here? What more can I do? Is there more that we could offer? Is there some way we can guarantee that they don't go home and get into trouble? Can we educate them a little bit more? So, if your standard operation is abundance, then when the busload of kids comes in that just rolled over, you have a huge amount of resilience to instantly ramp up your ability to care for the acute demand placed on your department. So it applies very practically to how you run and staff and operationalize the work that you do in an eMERGE.
0: If I if I go back to my training, so I, I actually worked in the emergency for two years after I finished residency. I did a lot of training in the eMERGE during my residency. One... Preceptor, mentor of mine in particular, a man I'm quite fond of from the Niagara region actually, he gave me the analogy of a conveyor belt. When a patient comes in, you place them on the conveyor belt. And when they go on, you have set up all the necessary investigations. A period of time will go by where they come off that conveyor belt, and you should be ready with an assessment, your decision. Your disposition for the patient, and you want to avoid, at all, uh, if at all possible, putting them on the conveyor belt again because you forgot to do something. Do you relate to that? Is that a practical point? Is that something we see a lot? There's
1: a lot of truth in what you've said. Uh, I used to tell residents that as well. Uh, there's no question that knowing, uh, thinking ahead, and being ready to, dispos- you know, disposition a patient is 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 a small step uh, towards efficiency. My main problem I have with it is that 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 describes the standard model. The standard model is um, sequential processing. You walk in the door, you see the triage nurse, then you see the registration clerk, then you wait, then you get a bed, then you see the doc, then you see the secondary nurse, then you have labs. You get the idea. Everything is in line like a long train of boxcars on a train that will never give you a high-efficiency department. And so Eli Goldratt wrote um, a very famous business classic called The Goal, and I'd encourage people to read it. It's been out for 25 years now. And he came up with the term bottlenecks. And what he did is he popularized the um, academic theory of constraints, which says that you can only go as fast as the slowest link in your sequence. So whenever you have a bottleneck, and there are all sorts of bottlenecks in emergency department, and they change depending on the time of the day or depending on sick calls, the only way to overcome those bottlenecks is with parallel processing. So you need a tiny little bit up front, let's say a quick look by a triage nurse. um, Are they sick or not sick? Where are they going to go to? And then everything else should flow in parallel. So If there's one thing that we talk about in the book is blowing up the conveyor belt idea and really have everything happen at the same time. And so if a doc can get to the patient before the nurse, before the secondary nurse, before the lab tech, then the doc should. If someone else can get to them first, then they should. And so if you have an all-hands-on-deck, almost a disaster response mentality where we are going to do everything at once... And it's not foreign to emergency medicine. It's exactly what we do in traumas or when people come in and they're arresting. And unfortunately, it's exactly the approach we take to our most privileged patients. We don't make them wait to get registered if a nurse turns to me and says, I think I'm having chest pain. We get them an ECG. We lie them down in the bed. We get them what they need right away. And so we need to take that same approach for patients if we want to be radical about improving efficiency in service, treating everybody like our most privileged patient.
0: That's a very, that's a very neat way of putting it. and it, it almost has this feel of a paradoxical paradigm shift as well. There, there was nights where I worked in the eMERGE where it was absolutely empty, and I, I see a young fellow walk in, and, 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 and I'm thinking to myself, if the triage nurse does her thing, no, sorry, if, the, if, the, if our clerk does her thing, the triage do, nurse does her thing, and then I see that patient, it's going to take literally 60 minutes before he's out of here, where I know he's walking in, maybe has a knee issue or whatever the issue was, if I go see him and talk to him. But that, that paradigm shift... It is accepted in a bit of a paradoxical way. Although it's more efficient, there's resistance to it, right? Yeah. Sometimes, I, I think. Every and you just, you
1: nailed a key issue in emergency medicine, and we talk about it at length in the book. Um, doing, you know, treating, so if that person that walked in with a sore knee worked in that department... Would they go 60 minutes through triage, registration, waiting, waiting? No way. They would walk in and say, Hey, Jason, I see your, can, can you x ray my knee? I really blew it out in hockey. Boom. And then the registration would happen whenever. They would get triaged at some point. There would be some nursing notes at some point. But you would get to that patient what adds value for them. You would add value for them as soon as they walk in the department. You wouldn't spend an hour adding value for us. To make sure we had the right demographics and the right tick boxes filled. So great, great analogy.
0: What what is right now the single most um, destructive thing that's happening in emergency medicine that needs to change? Is there one single thing that we can put our finger on, or is it more well I, I think I think it's a paradigm shift. We're asking for
1: people to in Emerge to focus on how can we treat our patients, all of our patients, not just the privileged ones who are inside, but the patients in the waiting room as well, how can we treat all of them as though they were our family members? They were our most privileged patients. They were all uh, news anchors for national television shows. So how can we get those folks out there that can't advocate for themselves the same care that our most privileged patients do? And if we can really get people to buy into that and see that this is really why we went into medicine, I think... Think you'd see a radical change in the way departments are run and the way all of healthcare is run. But again, that's a big, big question. You've got. You're have you good at asking big <laughs> questions.
0: <laughs> that, that, that's what I'm good at. In, in, in the office, I answer them, and then on, on podcasts, I ask them. The, and and I, I guess, I mean, the one, the one final point I want to make here before we move on is that what you've done, and and, and this is what I, even when I, I created this podcast, one of the things I wanted to do was. Start to touch on these hidden agendas hidden hidden curriculums because it's, it can be a taboo in a lot of ways to to go in on that turf right but you, you, you've done that here you, you, you've, you've taken that on and you've done it in a in a rather comfortable and necessary way so
1: so I, I apologize. I was distracting you by opening no. the book while you're asking the question. But I, I didn't want people to leave with the idea that it's just about privilege and that's it. Because we do, you know, the subtitle is 10 Steps. And so we try to break down the process into 10 actionable items, and actually, really sorry to use actually twice. Anyways, mm-hmm. so the 10 actionable items the first seven are the practical steps. So, where we talk about revamping triage, closing waiting room, and a whole bunch of other steps. And then the last three steps, steps eight, uh, eight nine, and ten, talk about how to make this stick and what are the bigger issues going on. And in a presentation I'm trying to put together for next week, as I was thinking about this, we tend to want a 10-step plan or a 5-step... pro You know, lose weight by doing these three things and you will drop 20 pounds. Um, there's truth in that. But when you're talking about change in a complex system, it's not just the steps. It's also the leadership required to do those steps. And when you really think about it, they're really not even steps. They're more of a leap. Mm. So I was thinking about my kids rock jumping at the cottage this summer... This summer. They're up there at the top. What do I do, Dad? Well, you take a step back, you run forward, you lift your leg in the air, you plug your nose, and and they're trying to think of all the 10 steps to jump off the cliff when really it's just about a jump. So that's the technical aspect of it. But then there's the leadership aspect of it. When they're up there, you have to answer their questions. Dad, what if a fish swims by? What if the wind blows? What if I pass out on the way down? And so you have to answer a whole bunch of questions that really don't seem at all relevant to the jump off the cliff. And as we say in the introduction to this book it's really a a whole a full meal deal once you change one thing like closing the waiting room, then you have to change staffing and you have to change ratios you have to change the furniture in the department and so We use the 10 steps as a heuristic to explain the new perspective, but it is a radical, different paradigm than the standard model for emergency care. And I think it applies to everywhere that patients are forced to wait, not just emergency medicine.
0: There is, there is a lot of transferability from your ideas and, and, and these steps to other parts, not only just of medicine, but in life in general, I really think so. And it, it, so uh, serving as a segue to something I wanted to chat with you about is, is, is your step number 10, where you talk about getting political. I got that right. Ray, is it step number yep, 10? That's well, one of the more final steps. Step number 10, get political. Yeah. And so I, I, I don't want to reiterate too, too much about what's been happening in, in Ontario medical politics with the Liberal government and Ontario MDs and the Unconcerned Ontario Doctors Facebook group and how powerful that movement's been. I, I'm curious to hear from you. You you have a very, very eloquent way of speaking politically and being active, but not, but not insulting others and, and getting your ideas across in a very poised and composed uh, sort of fashion. How are we doing as doctors in Ontario during this time in being political?
1: Um, well, I appreciate your kind words. I always get worried when I hear kind words that there might be some sting coming right afterwards. So that big smile you have on your face, I worry that you're hiding something there. Maybe not. I can trust you on that. But um, first of all, I am thrilled with the amount of interest, energy, activism, hard work that doctors are doing right now in Ontario. Uh, I, I believe that the worst possible emotion stance outlook that physicians can have that anyone can have actually is apathy and for many many years over at least in my experience uh since i trained in the 90s often apathy was our biggest enemy right now a ton of doctors are anything but apathetic and i'm thrilled our doctors who are excited and energetic angry perhaps are they always going to say the right thing is it always uh, is is their message always going to be coherent and coordinated no but that's still far better than apathy so i'm thrilled at what i'm seeing happening on the physician side in the province right now i maybe i'll stop there is that the kind of uh, yes keep going okay yes so so i think what we're going to see uh this spring is is that an okay direction Please. please do I think the government needs some positive news on health care very quickly. They're at a point in their mandate where they've made their cuts, they've they've done some radical things, but I think they're already starting to look ahead to uh, the election uh, in another three years or two and a half years. So they're going to be looking for a way to demonstrate to the voters that They can do more than just legislate, cut, or spend on people that threaten them. They need to show the voters of Ontario that they can enter into a very difficult situation, maybe talking with people who don't see eye to eye with them on everything, and still come out with a solution that is good for patients. And so that is the challenge, but also the opportunity for the government of Ontario right now to show that they can work out a solution in a very difficult situation. So I expect, and I hope anyways, that that's the passion that they are feeling right now. And I... I I don't think it can continue without some sort of good news. Uh, we, we've had two years of bad news, uh, two years of multiple unilateral action. You can't sustain a system like that. I'm surprised it's gone as well as it has for as long as it has. So I think we need to hear some good news. But I think there's other conversations that need to happen, too.
0: The. So my my prediction, more related to about a year ago, when the, when it really started to become a bit more apparent on Ontario with the unilateral cuts, and then last fall, winterish, when they, the final, or the, I should say the most recent cuts were made. My prediction was that, and, and, and some many agree, some disagree, but I, I think I'm right, and I'm still going to hold by it, was that they, they were testing us out a little bit, cut by cut by cut, to see what was happening to see what the response was going to be be and i mean we talk about apathy if we if we had an apathetic 30,000 docs in ontario i mean it, this would have been a very easy place to cut money and a lot of, as we know a lot of money goes to healthcare spending in in this single payer system but with the uprise of the concerned ontario doctors i mean we've had significant political face mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In, in multiple realms. I mean, like I, I've done a few YouTube videos. We had a chance to go to Queen's Park and we absolutely had a presence there. The sort of discussion that we've had and I, I you know, dare I say in a non-partisan way mm-hmm. with the PC and Jeff Urich and Patrick Brown, who I, I have a lot of respect for, mm-hmm. and, and I think they've done a very good job of listening. Mm-hmm. I think we've seen the Liberal government sort of halt a little bit and say sort of what you're alluding to. Oh, well, you know, maybe this isn't going exactly as we planned. Mm-hmm. Maybe we have to take a little bit of a turn. Do you think that's accurate? Do you think that there's going to be no more cuts, unilateral cuts anyway, yeah. in the next six months? So
1: um I used to think that you started by saying uh, the government was planning this and that, and do a little cut and see how. I, I think we're giving more credence than is really warranted. Uh, I used to think like that as well and say, "Wow, these guys are masterminds. They've got it all figured out. They're going to do a little cut and then see how it works." and and talking with uh, people smarter than me with a lot more experience, they've said, no, Sean, they're not. They're doing whatever they can to survive. You know, they didn't They didn't uh, plan to end up with a $300 billion deficit. They did what they had to do to survive. And lo and behold, now to survive, they have to manage this $300 billion debt. Sorry, not deficit. Um, and same thing with the cuts. I think... They're saying, you know, wow, holy smokes, we're we're in trouble. If we spend another dime, we're gonna have to, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna have our bond rating cut. So we need to make a, we need to make additional cuts on the docks. And then they go, oh, holy smokes, wow, they really got upset with us. Okay, now what can we do? So I think it's more of a reactive approach. Maybe that's not totally fair. I'm sure they're doing strategic planning and they have a direction. But strategies and plans change based on the reaction of the voters or of, of the doctors in this case. So, I, I think there's a lot more flying by the seat of their pants than we'd than we'd uh, like to admit. At least that's my sense.
0: What? Where would you give more credit to? Would you, Would you say that the concerned Ontario doctors have really made? Or or, or or, are responsible for a lot of the success that we've had in the recent months. If we can call this success by not seeing cuts and that sort of thing. Or is it equally shared by the OMA or to any degree shared by the OMA? No. Who, who, does, who does the credit go so, to?
1: So you gave me a wicked smile as you were asking <laughs> that question. It's like, all right, I've got you, Sean. <laughs> I dare you to answer this one.
0: <laughs> off, on,
1: nothing's off limits, right? I, I'm glad you stretched the question out long enough to give me a, a, come up with an answer. You know, as, as you were asking that, I was thinking you know what what tips public opinion right what what drives societal change and i was thinking back to the syrian refugee crisis and it seemed to tip over one picture of one kid on one beach far away from where we are now. And so how can I uh, answer that question to say, well, was it the press conference that Concerned Ontario Docs did? Was it the podcast that uh, this Profetto guy did? Uh, Was it the campaign that OMA has done with Navigator? And so it's almost as though you're asking for a complicated or maybe even a simple answer to a complex question. And I think the system is so, uh, Multifaceted that for us to say it was one major thing that caused the tip over, I, I think would be too simplistic. No que- there's no question in my mind that the Concerned Ontario Doctors Group, the Doctors for Justice Group, the LMA, the, the community meetings the OMA has designed, the community meetings that the Concerned Ontario Doctors have, have worked on, the uh, work that Navigator's doing. I, I mean, there, a, a number of the journalists have taken up the cause in various mm-hmm. news outlets blogs, podcasts. I think it has all helped. And I am not smart enough to be able to say it was one thing more than another thing that really that really made the difference.
0: The Whitby-Oshawa election. So this is where Now make sure I have these uh, these these details correct because I, I I've just been reading about this relatively recently. This was a formal liberal riding. Formal former Conservative, conservative,
1: yeah, right? It was Elliot. Christine Elliott had it. It's been conservative forever, and then she stepped down, right?
0: Yeah. Okay. So tell So what happened there recently, and how they they pulled in Kathleen Wynne and Justin Trudeau to actually visit the area to do some campaigning? Mm-hmm. Can you sort? Of, I mean, you you know it obviously better than I do. Can you sort of just reflect and, and, and describe what happened, and and is this a, a, as a result of the? Doctors being involved in that area? Yeah. So, uh, another great question. And I am
1: not a political expert. And so, I have to, you know, I feel like I'm on trial here where I have to tell the judge, you know, I'm just an eMERGE doc, I'm not a respirologist. I can only speak within the scope of my expertise. from what I know, and this is just from reading the papers and from listening to folks, uh, my understanding was that that, um, that by election, the previous uh, seat had been a longtime conservative seat and that, understandably, I think the Liberals would have really appreciated to get a Liberal candidate in there. Um I think our premier has shown a, uh, a desire, an interest, a, um, an appetite for campaigning locally, campaigning nationally, and I think she's really good at it. I mean, I don't think anyone would disagree that she's uh, shown some real prowess when it comes to winning elections. And so she played to her strengths and, and tried to uh, campaign there as well. Uh, I don't know the details about how she got our... Prime Minister of Canada to campaign in a local by-election. It made for some very interesting news and some interesting uh, news commentary. Um, uh, You can read a number of the... I think Rex Murphy wrote a very thoughtful piece about it just recently. That, for me, was interesting. I, 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 I don't know enough about politics or political history to say whether or not that's happened before, but that showed to me how important... They thought that by-election was now, in spite of all that, the voters came out and said, "Enough already! We we don't like the direction this is going, and we don't like. We really have strong opinions about which candidate we want in there." And I think the election results showed that. Now, again, um, what tipped that over? Was it uh, did the concerned Ontario doctors' campaign help? I think it was awesome that they were there. I'm not politically astute enough to know the degree that it helped, but I think every little thing we can do helps, and that's why I believe it's so important for each of us to talk with... Our members of provincial parliament, our friends, our family, every little bit helps. If we think that the only way to change campaigns is by getting on TV or getting an op-ed in one of the national papers, I think we've missed the boat. I think political opinion changes one person at a time. And it's the people who trust us that are most likely to listen to what we say and to change their voting Behavior or their opinions uh, based on their relationships and conversations with us. So again, I'm thrilled about the local physician work and the physicians across the province who showed up. But I think ultimately the voters made up their mind based on a whole a whole host of decisions uh, or uh, issues that that influenced their ultimate decision on how they voted there.
0: I think it was Benjamin Franklin who said, "Tell me and I forget; teach me and I remember." involve me and I learn yeah. right and, and I think I think there's much more applicability to academia but I mean when you start to look at behaviors and both political medical academic it has it holds a lot of value right mm-hmm. okay now so th- this is something I like to do it's actually quite fun. So it puts you on the spot a little bit, but I promise, nothing too bad. I thought that was over already. (laughs) (laughs) It's just begun. Oh, no. (laughs) So this is going to be a little bit of rapid-fire questions, right? You're only allowed, uh, and I'm going to, just to make this more legitimate, you're only allowed about 10, 15 seconds for each one to answer. I was told there would be no math. (laughs) (laughs) We won't... (laughs) I was going to do that with Nadia Lam. I was going to put some tricky derivative or integ- <coughs> integration question, but I, I decided not to. Okay, it, it, they're, they're relatively easy questions. So Facebook or Twitter, what do you prefer?
1: Uh, Twitter for now, but Facebook is growing on me. Why? Uh, there's more opportunity to converse. Uh, it's, a, seems to be a wider audience. When I look at the referrals fr- to my website yeah. from Twitter versus Facebook, Facebook, hands down, at least over the last year and a half. And so I'm spending more time focusing on Facebook.
0: I've noticed that too, actually, Sean, especially with blogs, you can see where they, where the listeners yeah. come from, right? Yeah. Um, Twitter, the most influential person in medical, Ontario Medical Politics
1: Jason Profeto.
0: <laughs> Correct it I'm not even going to give you a chance to change your answer That's it, I like that um, The ER system Our emergency departments in Ontario and Canada, in the world Are they going to change? Are people going to listen to these 10 steps? Are we going to move in a more positive direction? Because right now, these weights are killer
1: They already are, Absolutely in the liter- literature is coming out all the time we just heard the major redesign at mount sinai hospital is going to include a much reduced rate waiting room if any waiting room at all and they're building internal waiting rooms so right around the areas where people are working so get the patients inside which is a core tenant of of our approach so and not to say that we influence them to do that i'm just saying that these ideas are out there and as i say in the book it's it's not me coming up with these ideas these are These are discussed in the community all the time, and lots of smart people are writing, you know, serious academic articles about them.
0: So, no question, you will see big changes in emergency medicine. Uh, So, an appropriate segue to the next question which of these following adjectives describes you best? Humble, modest, confident. (laughs) (laughs) Next question. You were allowed to pass on one or two questions. <laughs> the next question, the single-payer system, is this going to survive the next year? Well, we
1: don't have a single-payer system right now, and that's what—that's the myth that people keep clinging to. We actually have multiple tiers, whether you're a federal employee or you're a prisoner or you're a WSIB, you're, you're getting services through WSIB, or you're out of province or you're visiting from another country. We have seven or eight tiers uh, right now where funding flows. So to say that we have a single-payer is, is a farce. Furthermore, for us to be so fixated on a myth that no longer exists in reality and that the rest of the world has abandoned, so all of Europe gives better care, better access to their poorest. Most needy patients in their population with a blended system than we do in Canada. Right now, the people that have the most difficulty accessing care are those from the lowest socioeconomic status. Mm -hmm. And so we have lost the moral high ground, and that is conclusive in the literature. And so for us to blindly insist that we should do more of the same without humbly looking at the successes in other jurisdictions, forget about the United States. I don't want to talk about the United States, but all the other other places in the world that have shown they can do better, better access, better quality, better care for less cost. We would it, it's only ideology holding us back from examining other ways of doing better for our patients.
0: And you use the word humble. So I'll take that as your your answer to one of the other <laughs> questions. It's your story, you tell it how you like it. <laughs> Eric Hoskins. Is this gentleman going to be the health minister by the end of 2016?
1: Oh, that's, that's a pretty short time span. Um, I, I don't know. I think he's uh, clearly a smart guy. He's a Rhodes Scholar. Uh, he handles himself better than many other people I've seen in the same position. I think that decision gets made by people in, with a higher pay grade than he's, uh, he's at right now.
0: OMA and the concerned Ontario doctors, which one I don't, I don't mean to pit them <clears throat> against each other, but which one is going to pick up the most momentum in the next momentum in the next six to 12 months? Politically. Uh, what do you mean by momentum? More strength, more power, more influence. Well,
1: I think um, Concerned Ontario Doctors has the biggest the biggest gap to gain on, right? They're at around 11,000 members right now. What's stopping them from getting 20,000 or 25,000 members? So I think if I was a betting man, I'd have to say the the greatest growth potential exists for Concerned Ontario Doctors. They also um, can be more focused. I think they've come out now, I believe, Nadia and Kelvin, or the last... Thing that I saw was they they wanted to find themselves as a and you correct me on this more of a grassroots activist kind Mm of um, organization which I think is brilliant Mm -hmm. it keeps you focused on a single issue and makes you much more nimble so that you can respond to things quickly (laughs) the OMA by nature is a gigantic. Bureaucracy, with uh, many, many issues on its plate. And bureaucracy is designed to prevent us from jumping off of cliffs without looking twice. Now, sometimes, most of the times, that's a great thing. Uh, it, bureaucracy isn't a great way to clean up a train wreck or a major yes. crisis um, and that's, that's been a struggle uh, for the OMA and, and it requires every member's support to help the OMA manage through a crisis we can't just sit back and say okay OMA what are you doing for me now the, we are the OMA it is our family name and, it's, and the OMA Central is only as strong and articulate and attractive and polite as the people that get involved
0: and I, I, I guess, in that regard too the the bureaucracy plays as a bit of a double-edged sword, and necessarily so in a lot of ways, right um, snowfall by the end of this month into March, are we going to have more heavy snowfall? No, it's done <laughs> and you say that I love it, you say it matter of factly my, 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 my last exam my last exam my last question. Um, prostate cancer screening, should we or should we not do digital (laughs) rectal exams routinely on men over the age of 50?
1: I think digital rectal exams have nothing to do with prostate cancer. They're a rite of passage and we definitely need to keep doing them. (laughs)
0: <laughs> thank, thank you for being a good sport about the questions. They're supposed to be friendly and, and quick-witted more than anything else. But so that is, uh, we're going to round to an end here. Uh, Sean, I mean, I really thank you for your time. You've 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 been sort of. I'm not sure this exists, but I, I guess we can create it now. A a social media mentor for me, right? right? Because the the first time I really learned about you is when I went to your website, and I just thought. And remember, I tweeted you, and I said, I said, this guy's got some great ideas. you know and and you said thank you and we we sort of engaged from there any any final parting words from your end before we
1: end well thank you for the opportunity to be here um as i said to you earlier if i hope people can pick up on your ability to tackle tough issues while trying to be Uh, very very cautious about making sure people save face and so you are able somehow to wade into a a just a tangled political situation and talk about ideas that would fall flat if someone else was handling them so i hope people that are listening to you that listen to your podcast that follow your blog uh Take the time to say, okay, what's going on here? How did he just stick handle through that? And I hope more people learn from what you're doing and take up that same passion and apply their, their interest to, to developing that skill to stick handle through the, through the thorny but necessary issues that we have to tackle. So thank you for what you do and for the opportunity to be here.
0: Thank you, Sean, and the, and the the feedback is quite kind. So the the book, normal, no more lethal weights: ten steps to transform Canada's emergency departments. I, I have had a chance to go through it, you know, somewhat quickly, but I, I really look forward to actually sitting down and, and reading it as a book. I, I enjoy, I, I enjoy your your ability to articulate and, and write, and so, I and, and like you said, the armchair philosophy. So I, I look, I look forward to a little bit of a mix of all of the above, and. The the one I mean just one more point here. Then what will end is that you shared that article. Remember that academic article that you shared, Mm -hmm. and and you know one was the ideas, but just the the second thing was just the articulation of it. And I thought, wow, you know this 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 is really good stuff. And now we actually have a book. I'm very excited. I think I think it's awesome, and it's available on Amazon. I think right.
1: Thanks again for mentioning it.
0: No problem. And thank you everybody. And we will have more podcasts out in the near future. This is the Serendipitous Logic. Podcast 14 with Sean Wiley. Thank you. Thanks, Jason.